We are reading from Acts, starting at chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it's through grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Bersabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who've risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell.
So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they travelled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. This is the word of the Lord. This is uh, part of a series we're continuing through this section of Acts over these weeks and seeing what it means for us in the 21st century in our lives today. So let me pray now as we come to God's word. Father, we praise you for this precious gift of your word, invaluable. We thank you that it is the most precious thing that this world affords. And so might we, this day, come to know you better as we look at your word now. By your Holy Spirit, would you open our eyes, prepare our hearts to hear clearly what you're saying here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, which would you say matters more, truth or love? You know that uh, feeling when the, the question comes from your friend or your flatmate or your family member, how do I look? Or what did you think of the performance, the presentation, the, the work that I've just done? Did you enjoy the meal that I've just spent two hours preparing for you? Maybe it's a, a peculiarly British thing to agonise over how to respond with both truth and love in these situations. I know in some cultures you can just say, it was terrible, and everyone moves on. But uh, that feels a lot harder here. But perhaps if you've um, moved, you know, moved, moved here more recently, you've come to realise in the UK at least, we, you need a better strategy than that with those kinds of questions. One suggestion for how to respond to those tricky questions is just to say, well, everything is amazing. 
It's amazing. Why is that? Well, you, you know, if you say it's amazing, you can kind of tick the love box. Um, but also, if, you're, if inside you're thinking, well, actually, it was a total horror show, um, you can still technically be telling the truth when you say it's amazing, provided you're going with the Oxford English Dictionary definition of amazing, which is causing great surprise or wonder. <laughs> now I've shared that with you, I won't be able to use that word. But anyway, I'm sure... You know, most of us will feel that tension at different times. Truth and love can feel kind of necessarily opposed, as if they're a kind of zero-sum game. You know, you've got more of one or less of one, you've got more of the other, whatever. But you can't have, it's very hard to have both at the same time. And often by temperament, we will often tend to favour one more than the other. But what we're going to see this morning is that in the Bible, truth and love actually always go hand in hand. They're not opposed to each other. They can't be separated. They mustn't be separated. They're like flesh and bones making up the human body. You know, a healthy, living, breathing human body needs flesh and bones, doesn't it? You know, if, if you, truth without love is like bones without flesh. You know, what's that? Well, it's a, it's a dead skeleton. Love without truth is like... Uh, flesh without bones. Imagine that. It's a kind of, I don't know, soggy mess. Well, the relationship between truth and love are at the heart of this passage in Acts chapter 15 that we have in front of us this morning. And there are big questions here about unity. And these are questions that we still grapple with today. So how do we decide as Christians who we should be united with? What do Christians do when Christians disagree There are big um, debates going on at the moment in our denomination, the Church of England, which in some ways are about these exact kind of questions. As our denomination considers questions around same-sex marriage in church and how we welcome people who are same-sex attracted. But this is actually also about day-to-day Christian living. What really matters in the Christian life? What are the non-negotiables? When we disagree with someone about whether there is such a thing as you know, appropriate clothing for a Christian to wear, or whether Christians can drink alcohol, or whether there's a Sabbath, or whether certain COVID restrictions are or were necessary. You know, not really an issue so much now, but it's not long ago, Christians were finding themselves at odds with one another on these things. When do we dig our heels in and argue, and when do we let things go? And of course, if Christians find these things difficult, well, actually, so does the wider world perhaps even more so, with the so-called culture wars, revealing very clear fault lines between people who think truth matters most and people who think love matters most, or whatever they mean by truth and love. And the result is utter chaos. And what we see in Acts chapter 15 is that actually both truth matters and love matters when it comes to genuine Christian unity. So you can see on the back of the notice sheet you can see the, um, uh, the headings there, and you can follow if, you, if it's helpful. Here's the first one. Truth matters. Christian unity must always be gospel unity. Christian unity must always be gospel unity. So did you hear the presenting issue um, from that, this very long um, chapter that we had uh, read for us? But did you hear the, 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 the presenting issue? Verse 1. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers... Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
That is the headline for the whole chapter and the basic question. So remember where we are in the book of Acts, chapters 1 to 9, the gospel went to the Jews in Jerusalem and then to Samaria and people started to become Christians, but they were, up to that point, were, were Jewish people becoming Christians. Um, and now chapters 10 onwards, the gospel has begun going to the Gentiles, non-Jews. And they've been becoming Christians. And in fact, they then needed the word Christian to describe what was happening. And that's, that's massive because up till now, to be a member of God's people was to become a Jew. And that meant if you were a boy, that you had to be circumcised. And that's a fundamental part of Jewish identity. And so the question then is, well, okay, if you're a Gentile, then becoming part of the people of God, do you then also have to be circumcised to show that you really belong to God's people? So some people have come from Jerusalem to Antioch, where the last few chapters have been based, and these people have come and they're saying, yes, this is what needs to happen. You need to be circumcised now. Great that you've become part of the people of God. That's wonderful. Now you need to um, take on the, the customs of the law of Moses. But Paul and Barnabas, verse 2, sharply disagree. And so they're sent back to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles to sort this question out once and for all. So fast forward, verse 5, they arrive and the point is made again. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And after some discussion, Peter stands up and responds so verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles should hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. And so what he means is that it was very obvious when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Jews in Jerusalem back in chapter 2 because they spoke in tongues the day of Pentecost and that was the sign that a new era in the people of God had begun. So it was a very, very obvious thing. You couldn't miss it. And the point is that then in chapter 10, the same thing happened to the Gentiles. Um, and if you look back, they, they, there was a very clear description of a, a similar type of, of experience of the Holy Spirit coming on them, of speaking in tongues in that kind of unique kind of way that was the beginning of this new era. And that's how they know then, okay, yes, the Gentiles are included in this too. Because the Holy Spirit has come on them in a unique, unmissable way. And Peter's point as he goes on is, well, they've already been accepted. And they didn't have to be circumcised before the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And so verse 9, he did not discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. So, verse 10, don't try and add what we ourselves have been unable to do throughout our history, he says. Or words to that effect. Not even we Jews can properly keep the law. That has been the history of God's people, he's saying. We know, in other words, that keeping the law can't make us right with God. We know that actually what we need, we Jews, he's saying, is we need Jesus. And so verse 11, the crucial conclusion, no, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so do you see what is the basis of this new unity between Jew and Gentile? It's a unity around the same gospel that saves anyone who puts their trust in Jesus. So what about today then? Unity today is often expressed in terms of kind of choosing to walk together while completely disagreeing about very fundamental issues. And that isn't what is happening here. There are some issues where it's too serious to say we can just agree to disagree. And that's what Peter is saying here. 
So imagine if he hadn't. Imagine if he said, okay, these are just different perspectives. Let's all just try and sort of, you know, keep going as we are and not worry too much. Everyone just do what they want. What would have happened then? Well, in effect, we would have ended up with two forms of Christianity, if you think about it. You'd have had Jewish Christianity, where you have to trust in Jesus and also be circumcised and keep the law, the law of Moses. And then you'd have Gentile Christianity, where you just have to trust Jesus. So it would have been a kind of two-tier Christianity right from the start, if that is what would have happened. You have had the real people of God who were circumcised and the rest who were second-class citizens at best. But from the start, do you see, they came together and they said, we are all here on the same terms. And all that's required is that we put our trust in Jesus. That is the gospel. And notice then how they arrived at that decision. It wasn't a kind of compromise where they listened to both points of view and they found a middle way that satisfied everyone. You know, I was listening to an interview with uh, the former British Prime Minister Tony Blair recently where he talks about how he negotiated the Good Friday Agreement that brought peace in Northern Ireland in 1998. And you know, you you listen to it, it's absolutely fascinating, but it's all about trying to convince both sides that they really were the winners. That's what they had to do. And they did that by kind of keeping them in separate rooms, and they never let them talk directly to each other. They always spoke through the mediators. And remarkably, they were able to get peace, even if it, it is a very fragile peace, even to this day. But the, the point is here, that it, this isn't what they did here. So it wasn't a kind of political, you know, let's yeah, you know, find something that satisfies everyone in the middle. No, this is, this is politics. This is not politics, this is theology. In the light of their experience of what God has been doing among them, they go back to the Bible as their final authority. It's very clear that, isn't it? They go back to, they say, look at what the prophet Amos actually says. So they're not, they're not saying, let's, let's, let's forget about the Old Testament now and, and kind of do something different. They're saying, no, this is what the Old Testament has actually always been saying would happen. The plan to bring the Gentiles into God's people. And actually, you know, that particular quote in verses 15 to 18 is just one example out of many through the Old Testament that point to the fact that one day the Gentiles would be made part of God's people. And so it's not something new, but that promise that has always been there has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So do you see, real Christian unity must always be gospel unity. This is the gospel that saves. When you add conditions to the gospel, like saying, you know, believe in Jesus but also be circumcised, and only then can you be saved, you destroy it and you change it completely. So it's like with this painting, you probably wonder what the Mona Lisa is doing on the screen. Well, okay, let me, let me try this, okay? I'm just going to take a moment to improve the Mona Lisa. Okay, let's see, if, let's see if this works. Okay, I'm just going to... Um, there we go. There we are. And then... Uh, okay, there we go. So what I've done, I've added to a beautiful painting, and what have I done by doing that? I've, I've destroyed it. I mean, it's terrible, isn't it? When you add to something that is perfect, you destroy it. And that that is the point here. You see? That is why Peter and Paul 
after him are making such a fuss about this. They're saying, no, only the gospel saves. Only faith in Jesus Christ saves. And if you say, it's no, it's faith in Jesus Christ, that's brilliant, but it's also these things as well, no, you destroy it. You make it terrible. So truth matters, do you see? That's what this is saying. Truth really matters because Christian unity must be unity around the gospel because it's only the gospel that saves. We talked about this a lot in recent months with the, uh, you know, and with the, the coronation, the Church of England has got momentarily distracted. But this, the, the, the debates in the Church of England rumble on. And the reason why many churches like ours believe it would be so serious and so wrong to change what the church teaches about marriage and the right place for sex and that, that kind of thing is because in the end that is actually changing the gospel. Because the gospel is about how we are saved from sin. And if we change what we say sin is, we are changing the gospel. And marriage is also given to us by God as a picture of what the gospel is. And if you change the picture, you are changing the gospel. Now, I'm not going to go into detail about that now because we've talked a lot about that over the last few months. And I'm always happy to pick up questions about that. But that is the point. And that is just one example of where this kicks in today. Do you see? Truth matters and Christian unity must always be gospel unity. But there is more. Because although truth matters very much, so does love. Love matters. And that's the second thing. Love matters. Christian unity means love for others must come before personal freedom. Love for others must come before personal freedom. So verse 19, what do they do? They conclude, verse 19, let's not make it difficult and add to the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone. But then what follows is slightly surprising. Because having said, let's not make it difficult, they, they, they then say, well, there, here are four things you do in fact need to do. So I don't know if you, if you heard this and you noticed it. Let's see it again, verse 20. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And then what they do is they put that in a letter. They send it back to Antioch from Jerusalem. And we get the details of of how that's sent in the following verses and then what it says. And then we get the letter from verse 24 to 29. You can see it set out there. And then it ends like this, verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. And together with that, there is the the very curious event that follows right at the end of the, the reading that we heard. Bearing in mind all that's just happened and the central involvement of Paul and Barnabas in ensuring that Gentiles do not have to be circumcised, what then happens? Do you notice this? Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul meets this guy, Timothy... Chapter 16 on the right-hand side there. He meets this guy, Timothy, who has a Jewish believer mother, but a Greek father. And a Greek is another way of talking about Gentiles. And verse 3, look at this in chapter 16. Paul wanted to take Timothy along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. But what's going on here? Can you see? That's really strange, isn't it, at face value? Having established the principle that you can't add to the gospel, this is really serious. No, Gentiles do not have to be circumcised. 
No, actually, there are circumstances, both in, the, in what is written at the end of the letter and then this particular event that then happens, no, there are circumstances in which things do need to be done. Gentiles are needing to do certain things nevertheless. And the point is not that they're completely contradicting what they've just said, but rather that they are particular, they're highlighting particular issues that are going to make it hard for Jews and Gentiles to live in fellowship with one another. And people have puzzled over exactly why these four things at the end of the letter are highlighted, but the most plausible explanation is that these four things are all things that you would find in the worship of a pagan temple in a Gentile city. Okay, so food sacrifice to idols, that was a huge issue in the early church. You know, should Christians eat meat that has been used in temple worship? In some Muslim cultures today, <clears throat> Christians worry about whether it's right to eat halal meat. And you think why that might be? Well, the person, that it's, it, halal meat is, is meat that's slaughtered in a particular way, but it's done while the person doing the slaughtering says a particular prayer to Allah. So, you know, it's a reasonable question, isn't it? Just, if it's been done in that kind of way, does that make it something that Christians can't eat? And I expect there are similar issues in, in, in other, particularly Eastern cultures, around those kinds of things where there's much more visible pagan worship on display than there is in the West, even now today. So there's those kind of questions. And then the, 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 the drinking blood thing, which isn't about kind of whether Christians can eat black pudding in a full English breakfast. It's about drinking the blood of a sacrificed animal. And the same with an animal that has been strangled. You know, the point is, in a particular ceremony, <clears throat> and they'd have known when they see this, they'd go, oh yeah, well that's what, that's what they do in the temple, in the, in, in the pagan temple in the city. So the point with this is that there was no hard and fast distinction between idol worship and everyday life. It was just part of the culture. So food that has previously been used in idol worship would very often then be sold in the market and taken home for dinner. So... Uh, the, and the point is, these are things that Jewish people and Jewish Christians would find culturally and emotionally kind of completely abhorrent. And so this is about saying, you Gentiles, when you come to put your faith in Jesus and you then become part of this Jew-Gentile church, you need to realise it's going to be really difficult to have fellowship with Jews if you carry on buying the meat in the market that has been sacrificed to idols, and certainly if you then offered that to a Jewish guest, Christian or not, you know that, that's going to be something. It's going to be it's going to be divisive in this church, which has just achieved this really precious gospel unity. Can you see? And the Gentile Christian at that point might say, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. We're free. It's just meat. What's the problem? You know, someone said some words kind of near the meat." Well, it's just, it's just meat. I mean, <clears throat> you know, under the microscope, if they'd had microscopes, you know, it's the same thing. It's the same bit of substance. It hasn't changed, has it? Do you see? So the Gentile Christian might say, this is ridiculous. Don't be so superstitious. Just eat the meat. But the point is now, this is about love. 
It's not loving to insist on exercising the freedom that you have if it offends the conscience of a brother or sister. It's not going to help unity. It's actually going to put barriers up. And the thing is that unless this was pointed out to Gentiles, they wouldn't realize and their ignorance would threaten the precious gospel unity that really matters. But then there's a slight puzzle, isn't there? Because what is sexual immorality doing in that list of things? Because elsewhere, for example, in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, where you get quite a lot more about these things, he says exactly what we just said about meat sacrifice to idols. So we've, I don't know if you know, don't worry if you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, but there is this letter, the first letter to the Corinthians. Chapters 8 to 10 are all about this question of meat sacrifice to idols. It's saying exactly this kind of thing. It's a love thing. It's, um, it's more important to love than to assert your freedom. But in the same letter and throughout the Bible, it's clear that sexual immorality isn't in that category. It's a very clear no from beginning to end. And chapters 5 and 6 in 1 Corinthians are very clear on that. So at this point, when they add sexual immorality to the list, the point seems to be not that it's a freedom of conscience issue like the other things, but that the reason it is here particularly is because it's again a pagan temple worship thing. So part of worship in pagan temples that w would involve sexual promiscuity with temple prostitutes. So, okay, it's just the kind of thing that went on in that kind of culture. And it would be, be totally ingrained. So if you're a Christian, if you, you become a Christian out of that cultural background, that would just be part of your psyche and how you see the world. Taken for granted, such that it, it particularly needs to be spelt out to Gentile Christians as they come to faith you really need to live differently now and see that that is inappropriate. But right here in Acts chapter 15, the primary reason for saying that is about not destroying fellowship. These are all things that will destroy unity, and unity matters, so don't do them. That is what they're saying, and that is why Paul then circumcises Timothy at the beginning of chapter 16 in that slightly puzzling way. Because even though they've just had a massive meeting about why that isn't necessary, but as is often the case in the Christian life, the issue is the motive behind the action, not just the action itself. Because we always want to reduce everything to a, a tick box of rules. You know, just tell me. Tell, just tell me. Is it, is it right or wrong? Circumcision, right or wrong? I just want to know. Tick it off the list. And the answer is, well, if you're saying it's necessary in order to be a real Christian and in order to be saved, it is absolutely wrong. Do not add anything to the gospel. It's faith in Jesus Christ alone that saves, nothing else. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. Don't be deceived. But if you're saying, actually, because particularly for Timothy, he had a Jewish mother, but a Gentile father, so he was a kind of mixed family and if you say well they would have kind of known that the people that he would have met and that would have stopped him being taken seriously by the Jewish people that he was meeting and if you're saying well you know I know I'm saved by faith alone in Christ alone that's not why I'm doing this but this is going to be such a huge distraction it's going to stop them from listening to anything that I say so I'm going to do it because what actually matters is faith in Jesus Christ, and that is what I want them to hear about. So can you see? It's the same action, but the key thing is, why is it happening? Very different reasons between those two situations. 
point is, if the issue at hand is not itself a gospel issue, an issue of how we're made right with God, then because that unity is so precious, we absolutely must not fall out over lesser issues that we might disagree about. And although we might personally think, you know, well, I'm, I'm free to do this, it is not loving to exercise that freedom when it wounds someone else. So what other examples can we think of today? You probably can think of all kinds of things, but um, Christians and alcohol can be a, one of those kind of situations. So, so I, d I don't think there's any reason for Christians to abstain entirely from alcohol. I think it can be enjoyed in moderation, but some Christians will disagree. And it is unloving, if I'm with a Christian who, who, who believes that, it's unloving for me to drink alcohol in front of them. So I won't. Um, how we dress is another example. There are often debates about what constitutes modest clothing for both men and women. And again, we can argue, oh, I'm, you know, we're free to dress as we wish. Not our problem if other people find things unhelpful. Not my problem. Or we can realise it's not loving to do things that provoke others or cause them to stumble. Martin Luther wrote an entire treatise on, on Christian freedom. And he summed up the point like this in this slightly paradoxical way. I don't know, it's not advising you put it on the screen. Um, he wrote an entire treatise. It says, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. But also, a Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, subject to all. And can you see what he's saying? He, he's saying truth matters. And that, that the truth of the gospel means you are free. You are not saved by what you do. So you are free, but love matters. And so your freedom is not more important than your brother or sister. So it's worth asking ourselves, what other things might we be free to do but need to say no to for the sake of our brothers or sisters? It's a messy world. We won't always get this right. I think the most recent example that where this really was a thing that we had to think about was COVID and the way that we responded to that. That was a very sort of real example of that. And in many ways, it's a relief not to be having to keep doing those kinds of decision making. But there'll be other things too that people can, 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 can identify in our lives. And there is a stark reminder of how we do get things wrong in these verses how we, you know, despite all that we've just been talking about, we don't always love and we fall out with other Christians. And that's exactly what happens in those final verses of chapter 15. So they just had this big thing about unity and then Paul and Barnabas, who stood together and said, it's faith in Jesus Christ that saves nothing else. They stood together and now they're falling out with each other in verses 39 and 40 over whether Mark should be with them. And this is sadly how, often, how it often is in, in, in the church. And I think Luke tells us this to remind us it's God who's in control. And actually what we'll see in the following chapters is the good that he brought out even of this disagreement. But it's reminding us real Christian unity is gospel unity and it's really fragile. It's really easy to blow it and destroy it in the way that we interact with each other and in the way that we behave towards one another. Because the gospel is at the centre of who we are and everything that we do, and that faith in Jesus Christ alone is what matters, 
Therefore, we have to be as loving and as flexible as we possibly can about everything else that isn't the gospel in order to maintain and protect and preserve that precious gospel unity that unites the people of God. So lots to reflect on. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we think about that in our lives now. So, Father, we thank you for all that we've seen in this extraordinary chapter this morning. Thank you for the truth of the gospel that unites us. It is faith in Jesus Christ who died and rose from the dead that unites us. Might we cling on to that very precious truth. And guard against that being changed or removed. But protect that. But might we then act, therefore, in love, particularly around things that are not the gospel? Might we be able to keep loving I'm seeing that as more important even than our own personal freedom. And we pray that that would be attractive in a world that so often doesn't know what truth is and doesn't know how to love. And we pray in Jesus' name.